This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Did somebody call for an icon? You're listening to Sissy.pod and this week we've got an extra special bonus episode for you where I got to sit down with executive producer of World of Wonder and Drag Race himself, Fenton Bailey. Fenton has written a book which is out now called Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race. It is out now, published by Ebury Press. It's 20 euro at all good bookstores or you can get it online from smarturl.ie forward slash screen age. If you are listening in the US, it actually isn't available until early 2023. I think we're getting the the head start because of DragCon UK is my guess. But I had a really fun chat with Fenton. I obviously spoke to him a lot about Drag Race, but also about some of the other projects he's worked on from working with Monica Lewinsky to Britney Spears. Such really interesting career and some really amazing personalities that he's worked with that are outlined in the book and in this conversation as well. So it was a really fun chat, really great opportunity to speak to a producer of Drag Race from this small little podcast. I was so happy to do it. So I won't keep him from you any longer. Please welcome to the podcast, Benton Bailey. On this week's episode of The Workroom, James and I sit down to discuss Canada's Drag Race Season 3, a really brilliant, diverse set of queens, some amazing challenges and some fun looks. We also had a really fun chat about some of the production choices made throughout the season. I feel that this season, unlike the US season, didn't have a master plan of who they wanted to go everywhere. It really sort of felt like, let's just see who does the best on the night and send them home and not be afraid of our overall storyline. Because I think if Lady Boom Boom had been in the bottom with anybody other than Kimmy Couture, she would have stayed. She just was out, like, they were probably the two best, maybe Jada Shada Hudson, you know, one of the three best lip syncers in the whole season. And it was just unlucky that it came down to that and that the show doesn't do double chantes. You know, I think it, it should never feel as if the wrong people have ended up in the bottom and I think one of the problems with US in particular is that oftentimes you get and even like say what happened with Dakota Schiffer on on, on on UK it's like kind of a queen who who like obviously doesn't deserve but is pushed there because of a, a want for production to like they, that should never happen but it felt like you can make subtle changes like I think Lady Boom Boom in the bottom three for that week, but not in the, the bottom two. To subscribe to here The Workroom, head over to headstuffpodcast.com and for five euro a month, you can get access to The Workroom and all the back catalogue. We'll see you there. Fenton Bailey, executive producer of Drag Race and author of Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race. Thank you so much for joining me today to chat. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first thing I wanted to ask you about was in the book, you write about Danceteria. And as soon as I hear Danceteria, I think of Madonna and I got super excited. What was it like back then? And is there anything that compares to it now? Well, um, you know, it was a small story place and... Mm -hmm. Andy and I would sometimes DJ on Congo Bills, and that's where we met um, Michael Ailig, the sort of leader of the club kids. But also earlier, it was where Madonna performed on the second floor, 
Um, this was back in the day when she had just her brother was one of her dancers and she had another dancer and a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. I mean, that yeah. was it. And <laughs> Andy, my partner at World of Wonder, it was a, a Sunday night, I remember, and he's he's like, oh, Madonna's playing, do you want to go? Um, because there was all this buzz about her and she was just emerging as this star. And I was like, no, I'm too tired, I'm going to stay in. <laughs> so he went and, and saw Madonna, like one of the first performances. Um, and I was too tired. <laughs> my life. <laughs> most, yeah, most regretful night's sleep you probably might, might have had then that night. Yeah, exactly, right? Because that was in the era of like Jelly Bean and everything, right? Like around that, that early 80s era. Absolutely. Yeah, Mark Kamen's Jelly Bean Benitez. They both DJed at Dancesteria. But my other story is that um, I was in the pyramid at happy hour and this kid came in who's actually British. I didn't know him, but he was British, Martin Burgoyne, and he was a graphic designer. And he had this album cover um, of this artist, and it was the cover of Madonna's first album no. that he had signed. Oh, wow. just showing his friends the artwork. And I was like, who's that? You know? <laughs> Exciting. Wow. Will, will we ever hear a Pop-Tart song as a lip sync on Drag Race, do you think? <laughs> I would have to kill you if I told you, but it's not. Never say never. never. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the Iron Man Van Helden version that you mentioned in the book. Oh, as well. right, right. Yes. I mean, that was a surprise, I tell you, because many years after not being successful as pop stars, um, we, I think it was actually Rue who said to us, uh, you know, um, there's a version of New York City Beat playing in Europe. It's a, it's a hit. And we're like, we thought, oh, you must be mistaken. And then <laughs> one night we were watching the trailer for, sort of a trailer for this Zohan movie. Oh, yeah. And we're like, oh, my God, that's our song. And uh, Armin Van Helden, bless him, thank him so much, had sampled the entire, had sampled our first single pretty much in its entirety. And it was a much bigger hit over here than it was over there, because I remember that being on the radios over here and everything and not knowing. Yeah. It was a, it was a cover. Exciting. Um, yeah. In the book, you you kind of you lay it out quite clearly. Like there's a kind of different chapter on, on sort of each of the sort of big projects you you've worked on. And some of the topics you've worked on kind of delve into true crime like you mentioned Michael Eilig, Rodney King, Eric and Lyle Menendez. What is it about true crime that you think keeps people so invested in these stories? You know it's this kind of golden age of true crime isn't it? I mean people just can't seem to get enough um, <clears throat> and that's a really good question I wish I knew the answer why. Um, I mean I think with with the Club Kids film we made with Party Monster I don't know that the, you know, the true crime piece of it wasn't really what was interesting to us in the sense that we really wanted to make a film about the club kids because we were just so fascinated by them. And I think it's kind of sad to say that the only way we could raise money was once the rumors about the murder started circulating. Because before that, everyone was like, oh, who wants to make a movie about the club kids? So, um, we're not really true crime junkies. Uh, and I think when we made the Menendez Brothers film, it was just a story that everyone had said at the time, they were just sort of psychopaths and that they they would, they'd murdered their parents, et cetera, which they did do, but that they were sort of, they were, they were just sort of rich, spoiled rich kids. And just having a feeling that it just seems really weird that they, you know, that you would thrill kill your parents. It just, 
it didn't seem. And then there's so when 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 the stories about the sexual abuse started, you were like, even though it was so outrageous to think of a father sexually assaulting his own children, it, it just seemed like that could be possible. And I think now we do believe that it not only is it possible, it pro- that's probably what happened. And the sexual abuse within families is something we know so much more about now, even gay sexual abuse. And, and I think that that's a sort of consequence. That's one example of the way television has changed our lives because it's because of that that we are familiar with these cases and hear about them, whereas before you wouldn't hear about it at all. To the extent when it came out in the Menendez trial, everyone was like, no, that's not, that's made up. That's bullshit. Mm. Yeah, and like, not only is it possible, it's a lot more common than we like to think it is, which is an even darker thought, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that that's like trying to, I guess that's what TV does, is it really, unlike the movies, which is sort of building things up and creating a sort of lovely mythic idea of people and stars, TV is more about what's real and strips all that away. And I think that maybe that's why true crime is so popular, because it's about revealing, getting beneath the surface of things and re- revealing the truth or trying to get to the truth. Yeah, the, the ugly truth, I suppose, that we, we face. Yeah, yeah. Because some of the stories you've you've covered in your, your work, are like Tammy Faye, Monica Lewinsky, OJ, like these are evergreen stories. Like, what is it about them again that makes them so, you know, evergreen? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, with Party Monster, it was so weird in the sense that you know, Angel, who was murdered by Michael, would wear these angel wings. It was almost like a, a Shakespearean play, you know, playing out. And I do think that those stories that continue to resonate always are playing on these archetypes, you know. Um, and and the, the funniest thing about Tammy Faye is I think when we made the documentary, it was because people just thought she was a joke. And we felt that she was, there was something else and that she was a lovely person and a sort of really inspiring and spiritual, but not in the religious sense, spiritual in a in a in a humanistic sense, in a in a way that like RuPaul is a very spiritual person. It's not about it wasn't for us about religion, it was about you know empathy. And it's amazing to see that over the years people have begun to take Tammy Faye more seriously. Uh especially with Jessica Chastain making the movie version of the documentary. You know, it's like amazing. Because Tammy Faye is not somebody I would have known well over here at all like my first sort of interaction with her was via ginger minge at the snatch game you know and, and yes. like and then seeing the movie and kind of engaging it in media around it and seeing like you know ginger minge's portrayal of her with all the tears and stuff realizing like oh that's what people used to make fun of her for was for for all, all the crying but actually it was it was actually us ridiculing a woman who was just showing empathy yeah no you're right and ridiculing her for her makeup Mm. Um, which which is funny because you know in a way Tammy would always say oh I'm I'm a drag queen and she really was in a way the, the first uh, AFAB drag queen I would say yeah. you know before Victoria Scone there was there was Tammy Faye <laughs> Dolly Parton we put her up there as well oh 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got the sense from the book uh, that you might be a bit like myself, which is someone with, with so many ideas in my head and I find it hard to pin down the one I want to go with. You know, mm-hmm. from your standpoint, do you have like a, a Rubicon that something has to cross where you know, okay, this story is good enough to be told or this idea is good enough to be made? Well, one of the, the yes, I think I'm one of the revelations because I have long been obsessed with, look, as a queer person, I've long sort of felt, I think growing up, you were taught there was something wrong with you. Even if you have supportive parents and, and the like, you're still in a world which fundamentally doesn't believe it's good to be gay, you know, even though there are a lot, a lot more positive signs than there were. And so I've always felt there's something wrong with me and I've, and I've always loved camp. And and the one thing that's always sort of irritated me about the way camp is perceived is that it's a guilty pleasure and that it's it's sort of fine, but it's silly, you know, that it's sort of immature. And I've always felt very differently. And so I kind of, in writing the book, was trying to figure it out. Like, what is it about camp? And the Rubicon for me then is this, that really what camp does is it quite deliberately aims to not be taken seriously it it's um and by being misjudged and underestimated that's how it has the most impact because it because it's doing all this radical stuff while people think oh it's just a silly bit of fun and i think that's the at the heart of drag i think that's at the heart of andy warhol i think that's at the heart of so many things that for me, a really move the needle or just float my boat is, is is there are things that people dismiss as trashy or not worth the time of day. And because of that disguise, they're actually able to get into the culture and do radical shit. Like, for example, Madonna. I mean, I think, you know, everything she's done in her career has been really revolutionary and radical all in the guise of being a silly pop star that no one really cares about and taking for that a huge amount of heat, you know, just being insulted at every turn, but just quite brilliantly doing really important stuff. And I, and so, so it's a very long answer to your question. I'm so I'm sorry. I'm happy. No worries. But I think that television has been dismissed as a medium that is, is trashy. and Definitely ins- reality TV as well. Especially reality TV. And yet, I think that medium has the most impact, you know? Um, And oftentimes I've noticed scripted will move in, movies will come in and redo what unscripted or reality has already done. Not just Jessica's movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, but, you know, um, like we were doing a lot of uh, trans programming long before transparent and you know those other scripted shows that win a lot of awards justifiably but i think oftentimes the first thing to make the change or to to tell the story is unscripted or documentary or reality yeah like i definitely think there's there's an inherent bond i think between the queer experience and reality tv especially for me growing up watching big brother seeing trans people seeing gay people people that you don't normally don't make the cut in other sort of walks of or or not walks of life but other sort of tv shows and you as someone who lives possibly on the fringes in a certain way whether you want it or not get to peek at other people on the fringes and i think it's a really sort of like community experience it is and i think it's 
what's so brilliant about TV is that unintentionally, I don't think you know anyone invented TV and said, this is going to be the platform for queerness, but that's actually yeah. the reality. Um, yeah. That's how we've made ourselves visible in a world that didn't want us to be seen. Hmm. Absolutely. I was very excited to see there was a whole chapter on, on, on Britney Spears on, in the book. What, what's your relationship with the free Britney movement? Because I, I wasn't sure how, how pro it you were having read it. Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, I want Britney to be happy. I I just felt that I'm not sure I have that my my. I'm not sure that the free Britney movement was always well informed. And I do think that the the truth is slightly more complicated than the idea that even though I know, you know, I follow Britney's Instagram religiously, and even though I know she has a lot of rage towards her father and her parents and, you know, her management. But I did see when we were making the film a group of people who were protective of someone who was vulnerable. Um, and that's not to say Free Britney is a bad thing. I just think, you know, maybe it started as one thing and became another, you know. The, but but I do think, um, you know, the thing about Britney I think is so amazing is, I mean, I'm you know, a huge fan. Um, and I suppose it's like, you know, I just think she was incredibly badly treated by the media in the sense that, People couldn't believe that the person who sang Toxic or Hit Me Baby One More Time or Slave For You was an ordinary shy person. And I think that's that's a truth that people to this day are reluctant to admit. And I also think, you know, Chris Crocker or Cara's YouTube video, Leave Britney Alone, I think that was a, you know, look how mocked she was for that video, but really... I felt she called it out. At, 20 you know, years Britney ahead of everyone else. Yeah, leave Britney alone. Um, and I think if you or I had to go through a fraction of what Britney has been through, it would drive us insane. I don't know, I don't know how I'd survive that. And I see that a lot. You know, Tammy Faye went through so much hatred and opprobrium and slurs and negativity. Monica Lewinsky, these are incredibly strong people that's inspiring people because they go through all that shit and they come out and they're not vindictive and not you know i mean damaged of course everyone's damaged but amazingly they survive it and that's that's an inspiring thing definitely it's very resilient women um so obviously this is primarily a drag race podcast so i, I have right. loads a list as long as my arm to ask you fenton right so we'll get on to some of those questions uh that are from the book as well in the book you mentioned roxy andrews's outburst on the main stage as an example of like the magic of drag race and the stories that it can tell i think the mirror moments are also a really brilliant moment for for telling personal stories mm-hmm. is there a particular rare moment that always stands out to you as just being like heart-wrenchingly sweet or sad it's that Roxy Andrews moment. It really is. I mean, I'm I'm a dad. I have two adopted kids. And so, you know, just talking about it gets me all choked up. Just like the idea that someone can leave their child at a bus stop. I'm just like, it just is heartbreaking. And um, 
yeah. Um, and it's so raw that I don't know what it is about that moment for me, but it just all it's just it just cut, you know, I think as as gay people, we're pretty good at building our defenses up and being fabulous and not letting shit get to us. But that moment just like you know just cracks me wide open like it just cracks me wide open every time even now you know i i kind of can't bear to watch it's not something i go back and re-watch just remembering seeing it once is like um and because i think we all you know all of us feel to some extent even if we had a very positive upbringings with our parents we all feel um rejected or or abandoned or you know like i i often think of that moment when it you know reveals about the passing of sahara davenport or even when when cynthia lee fontaine discusses the shooting at pulse nightclub as well like it i think it's i think now in 2022 we're a lot more connected but in the early days like it's kind of how you'd get your queer news from the america sometimes you know like in the early days when we were less connected and it's yeah, it's it's kind of like a a log of critical queer history. Those mirror moments, I find they are. That's true, and and definitely, that's how I knew I was queer was being a kid watching TV because most of the shows were American, and I just picked up this vibe, you know. Like even even something that made me laugh the other day. I the it's an old black and white series, Man Called Ironside, um, Raymond Burr. I had no idea he was gay, but why I was completely captivated by that show. Loved that show. Obsessed by that show. And I guess it was the, the gaydar was pinging, you know. Um, so, you know, as a, as a kid, I got to see. Yeah. Um, I think it is really interesting that, that that experience of growing up, loving something for that your other friends don't love, whether it's Britney Spears or whether it's pokemon whatever it is and then you grow up and you meet other queer people and you all realize you've been obsessed with the same thing on your own your whole life what the i like i can't put my finger on why why it is like we love a a powerful woman you know i think we love hyper femininity but like it still bowls me over whenever i experience it yeah and it's i mean i think it's i the the other thing about the roxy is moment that always gets me is what Rue says when he says, you know, we are a family and that chosen family. And th- and that's what I'm picking up on what you're just saying. You know, when you meet other people, other gay people, and you realize you've all been obsessed with the same thing and that there is this connection and this family relationship, this, this chosen family thing, which I think is so powerful. And, um, you know, I, I, think chosen families can be more supportive and loving than biological biological families in terms of watching drag race i know the 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 fandom are very um vocal about the editing and i think more so than any other reality show like drag race fans love to get into behind the curtain and how things are made and one thing they often talk about is is a villain edit and i wonder from a reality tv point of view like how do you manage a responsibility of portraying somebody in a negative light or doing something that might be perceived as nasty. Like how do you manage that with like looking after the contestant? Absolutely. And it is a responsibility. And we, you know, yes, drag race is a competition, but as we always say to people, you know, everyone's a winner and that the competition isn't 
that's, I know people take it very seriously, but also it isn't really about the competition. You know, it's about this artistry and this brilliance. And actually, we don't we don't script it or create villain types. Um, and we're we're also very um, in terms of looking after people's sort of mental health. That's a big priority. And there's all sorts of things that we do to support people and give them access to for that yeah definitely because even even like even someone like the vixen was such like i found it such an interesting person to be on that show because it really made me assess how i viewed the show especially like in terms in terms of like you know there's that there's that scene with the vixen and talking about how she felt that if she was angry she'd be portrayed as the angry black woman or that's how the audience would see her do you Mm. feel any onus about those sort of cliches and having to adapt for an audience that might have racial stereotypes in their mind well, I think um, we always try to be fair and accurate, you know. Um, but and uh, also at the same time, you know, it's a show that is edited, you know, because any any story you tell is always has to be edited. You always have to make choices. But we're really um, conscientious about those choices and really try to be as fair as we can and totally understand that everybody has their own perspective of of product that's different but has social media changed how you make the show no i mean social media has definitely changed social media has definitely changed things because when drag race started 2009 i mean i actually can't remember like what twitter didn't exist did it no i think it was like bebo was what we used over here maybe msn messenger or friends (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah definitely but no, we we the, the the show has a dimension or an existence on social media, but we don't. We just make the show. You mentioned in the book that the BBC was like the holy grail for Drag Race. That you really wanted to get on the BBC because you felt it would open many doors. I was curious to know why why you felt like that, and also what other countries would you like to to branch into? Well, you know. Um, it was a long time. I would come over to the UK <clears throat> for about five years pitching Drag Race and went everywhere, uh, not just once, but many, many times. And Michelle Visage also was very vocal about it. Um, so, yes, the BBC was the holy grail, but also any any grail was a goal. <laughs> <laughs> That, you know, I mean, fortunately, Channel 4, Channel 5, ITV, they all said no multiple times. Sky, you know, fortunately, the BBC said yes. So um, after saying, you know, they all said no a lot. Um, And that was sort of a magical moment. But having done so, I think it's sometimes, you know, the universe works for you. You know, pro-Noia, the universe is working for you because the BBC around the rest of the world is seen as this iconic institution and it's a public service broadcaster. And I think a lot of people previously thought that Drag Race could only exist in a commercial television environment. Um, 
not necessarily as a public service show. And what's so amazing about Drag Race is it's very bi, it's very versatile. It works on commercial networks and it works on public service networks. And I'd say at this point, it's about 50-50 in terms of the, the territories it's in where we're making original versions. Some are, are commercial, some are public service. Um, so I, I think that as the sort of world's preeminent public service broadcaster, the BBC added a, a glow, added a sort of, had a halo effect for Drag Race. I, I have to say, I love some of the international franchises that we cover on the show. Like I just, what I love the most about it is just the cultural exchange. Like I learn about, you know, queer, like, like La Veneno or the, the Javis or Raffaella Cara, like all these people I've learned about through the show. And it's great to see all these other gay icons from all the other shows. Do you have a particular favorite moment from any of the international franchises? I just, I do love um, just the way Spain is sort of, I say, off the hook. And I say that with love. It's just off the hook. You know, it's like, it feels like an Almodovar movie. And um, I also, I've always loved actually Down Under because I just love how, how kind of, radically rude they are to each other but all coming from a place of love i think they spain's the same all. as well like the amount of f words that they throw around to each other and they're all so happy with it and things like you know also the like you i love learning you like rip the scab off a can of piss i'm like what what yeah. is that um uh but rue was just thrilled and delighted and it means apparently it means to open a can of beer Yes. I, oh, you're like oh yeah. I, I, I know right. only only from the show did I know that. Yes, <laughs> cultural exchange. Kind of piss. I mean, and so um, you know, and then you know, Canada. I the, the Canadians were so anxious that they would that they would be a boring show, but I think it's you know, I think really great. Yeah. So, uh, Nikki Doll as the host of Drag Race France is phenomenal. I mean, so all of the, you know, I do love them all. I really do. And I think that, like you, I think that they all have a, drag has a different relationship to the culture in every country. So it's really interesting how it plays out. And interesting, you know, like, because I don't know if there's a, but, you know, Italy, Spain, Philippines have all have really strong Catholic traditions. I wonder if there's a connection there or something. Well, Ireland is a very uh, Catholic country, um, so... <laughs> Come on over. I'll knock you on the doors of RTE. I'd <laughs> love to do it, really. Um, okay, well, I think we're running out of time. I'll be at Drag Race, or, or, sorry, Drag Con UK. Will you be there? I will. So, Super. Drag January, I was going to say, Draguary, yeah. uh, January 6th, 7th, and 8th, right at the yeah. Exa. So, that would be great to see you there. Yeah, but and, I said, I'll, I'll be thank there. Thank you so much for your support, by the way, and for, for, the, for all that you do. Really no problem. We, well, thank you for making all the. I, I'm glad that uh, not a week goes by without a drag queen to talk about somewhere in the world. Now that that's that, that's that's your legacy, and I hope you're proud of it. <laughs> well, it's 400 queens so far have walked the wow. way. Screen Age How TV shaped our reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race by Fenton Bailey is published by Ebury Press and is available in all good bookstores now, or you can order it at smarturl.it forward slash Screen Age. Fenton Bailey, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Good to meet you. I hope you enjoyed that chat. As a reminder, Screen Age is out now. The full title, Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality, from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race. And it's really well laid out. There's kind of like a chapter on all of the really big projects he's worked on as part of World of Wonder and gives you just a 
you know, really great insight into the power of reality TV and how, like you mentioned in that conversation, it's often dismissed, but the real sort of power behind it. So if you're looking for a present for a friend who's a big Drag Race fan, this would be like the perfect sort of stocking filler. Even just a reality TV fan, like it isn't filled with Drag Race stuff. There's definitely Drag Race stuff in it and, you know, Graham Norton writes the foreword. But just somebody who's a real reality TV buff, I think would really enjoy this. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I'll be back with you on Friday morning for the finale of Drag Race UK Season 4. I'll see you then. See you. Love you. Bye. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Head Stuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.